You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning, Vine family. How are you this morning? Wow, we, this is, good morning, Vine family. How are you? Yes, there it is. There it is. I always hate breaking up the, uh, the meet and greet. And so at Eastside Church, where I'm a pastor, we just don't even have one because it just makes me feel so terrible every Sunday breaking it up. Um, no, but my name is Ben Hacker and I'm a pastor at Eastside Church. Um, if my face is unfamiliar to you, it's because you've come in the last four months or so. Um, we planted out uh, in August, officially. Uh, first services started in September. On the east side, we meet every other week at Lowell Elementary School. And then every other week, we split off into what we call neighborhood churches. And we meet in three different neighborhoods now um, on the east side of Madison. And it has been so neat to see God move and work um, and so we had our first baptism last month of someone who's come to faith since our public launch. And so praise God, he's moving on the east side. It was so exciting to see that. And we're just now um, about to put forward two guys as elders in training, uh, as what we call an elder candidates, uh, to borrow the language from here. And so God is moving. It's deep work. I think myself personally and for Michael, like this has been a season where you've just seen God do amazing things. And also just seeing him get some real heart work done in our lives. And so your prayers have not been wasted. Don't stop. Please keep praying um, all the more fervently as we get into 2020. And I just want to take a moment before I start today to say there's been this certain steadiness that we've experienced through this time. God's grace at work, but also our DNA coming through. And so I just want to take a moment, Vine family, and tell you that God's grace is at work, and we have good tracks to run on because of your faithfulness to the gospel, because of your faithfulness to work that out in community, and your faithfulness to always be on mission. So Eastside Church benefits from your commitment to those three things, and your commitment to planting churches in Madison and beyond. And so don't stop. By planting Eastside Church, you joined 2% of churches in America today who plant more than one time. Let's see that number increase. We want to join you in due time, God willing. And ultimately, this morning, as we look at kind of the second part of this two-week mini-series on God's Word, it's faithfulness to God's Word that actually results in more churches being planted. And so as we start 2020, we want to zero in on this blessing that comes from listening to and living out and living according to God's Word Christian life is about seeking that out, submitting to it. We want to put this word above us as we seek to live. As Zach pointed out, happiness is in its realest when God is at his nearest. And he's nowhere more near to us in a tangible way than when we open his word to meet with him. And so we're going to do just that this morning. As we explore what it looks like to put the word into action in our lives Brian mentioned New Year's resolutions, and in a room this size, I have no doubt 
that we're all over the map when it comes to spending time with God in His Word as part of our New Year's resolutions. And maybe all of yours have already been broken. It is the fifth of the month, after all. But that's okay. And if spending more time in God's Word is part of your New Year's resolution, drink deep this morning. And if not, drink deep this morning. Since the New Year bell has rung last Sunday, maybe you're aiming to read through the whole Bible this year with the vine, stay on track. Maybe you're already off track, as I mentioned. But wherever you are, it's not about perfection. It's about faithfulness. It's about walking and living in light of who God is and what he says. And so let me pray for us this morning, and then we're going to look and open God's word together. God, I'm grateful to be here with these people, some faces familiar, some not familiar to me this morning, but we are gathered in your presence. And as we open your word, I pray that you would help me to faithfully communicate this passage of scripture this morning, that we would hear it together and be able to put it into practice. God, you are so wise and so smart, and we want to submit to your sovereignty this morning. You have orchestrated this gathering. It is no surprise that everyone in this room is here this morning and sitting under your word, that this passage is being preached. You know the seasons, the places of our lives, the boundaries that you've defined. And so would you, out of your love for us, bring us closer to you and to one another this morning. We love you, God, and we're eager to hear from you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you'd turn in your Bibles or open up your app to James. So it's a little book tucked in between Hebrews and First, second, and third John in your Bible. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 this morning. And as you turn, I just want to tell you a little bit about our author, who he's writing to, give us some of the context. One of the principles that we've been teaching the East Side people over the last year and a half is that the Bible was written for us, but not written to us. And so understanding the context that it was written in, understanding the original audience is helpful. That's going to help us this morning as we unpack James 1, 19 through 27. And it's going to prevent us from misinterpreting what God is saying, and it'll keep our response in line with what he's asking us to do this morning. See, James is the brother of Jesus. He most likely spent a good amount of time following the events of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the only letter from him that's in the Bible. And in it, he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. These are Jews who'd been scattered throughout the known world at the time, and they're far from home, from family, from familiar land, from like-minded people. Their world is not unlike the world that we're living in right now. As the years go on, I think it becomes clearer and clearer that this world is not our home. And we, like them, without question, are in need of encouragement, comfort, and hope. James is all of those things, but he's not flowery in his delivery. We're going to see this morning that he gets to the point. He continuously calls the Christian community to a life of contrast with the culture around them. He's calling them out of conformity in the same way that his big brother Jesus did. We know a bit about James that would be helpful to us. We know he was devout. He was known for his piety, his mercy. He was known for living like Jesus, set apart from the culture of the day, for faith, for ministry. He doesn't have the warmth of John. He's not eloquent or scholarly like Paul. He doesn't address the leadership of the church with the same kind of authority that Peter does. But he's clear. He's straightforward and very Godward in his writing. And that's a really good thing for us this morning. James has a high view of God's word. 
I think if James were standing here this morning, he would hold the Bible above him as he read it. So we're going to see through James this morning as we read verses 19 through 27 and unpack it. That this word, this word that we have, we are called to respond to. And as we respond to God's word this morning, it's my hope that we'll see that we're God's people and that we're called to live distinct lives of worship in a response to his word. And so would you open the ears of your heart and I'll read James 1, 19 through 27 for us. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this morning, as we look at what does it mean to respond to God's word, specifically, what does it mean to respond to this word out of God's word? We need to see three things together, three responses. Number one is to receive the word. Number two is to reflect the word. And number three, we're called to rely on the word. And we'll need to keep in mind that these responses kind of stack or build on one another as we go. They're connected to one another, and in the end, we'll see that they illustrate that God's people, us, are called to live distinct lives of worship for him in response to this word. So here we go. Let's look at response number one. We're called to receive the word. The first response that we're to make to the word of God is gotten at in two parts here. So first, James highlights an ongoing situation that his audience, these early Jewish Christians, are dealing with. And second, he moves to a general call to put away worldliness in order to live for God. Verse 19 begins with three Old Testament commandments. Already, James is starting with the word. One from Ecclesiastes, two from Proverbs. The commands are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And it's easy to get tripped up here if we don't remember and remind ourselves that James is writing to um, who he's writing to. There's a group of New Testament Christians. This is shortly after the church is established. And they're scattered. And the scriptures that they have are the Old Testament uh, scrolls and writings. And then maybe they have some letters that have begun to be circulated. But they don't have a Bible, as we would call it. So their scriptures primarily are the Old Testament. So he's quoting scripture to them as he writes. They'd have heard of these passages. They'd be familiar with them. He's anchoring them in the Old Testament to set the stage for what's coming in verse 20. So let's work through each one of these commands that he lays out one by one. Be quick to hear comes from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. 
Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The command slow to speak comes from Proverbs ten nineteen. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Slow to anger comes from Proverbs fourteen twenty nine. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is hasty temper exalts folly. So as we look at the, through the lens of these Old Testament passages, I think we start to see that James is writing these bits of wisdom not as general reminders, but as a specific correction. Something was going on in the way that the Christian community of the day was interacting with the world at large, and James is telling them to stop, to choose godly wisdom over foolish living. From his corrections, we discern that their words had gotten out of control, leading to angry outbursts. They were damaging the community that they were a part of. But what were they after? There was angry outbursts going on. If we look back at the languages of Ecclesiastes, we see, don't let your words be hasty to utter a word before God. If God's in heaven, you're on earth. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. So what are they after? Later on in James chapter 4, he's going to help us to see that fights and quarrels and anger all stem from wanting something and not getting it. So they're fighting, they're quarreling, they're angry, but but what do they want? What they're after is the righteousness of God. And we see this by looking at verse 20. For the anger of man, what they were exhibiting, what James is telling them to put away, does not produce the righteousness of God. See, they're trying to get at the righteousness of God through anger. And James is telling them that it won't work. Anger is sin. And James already warned them earlier in chapter 1, verse 15, that sin, when it's full grown, leads to death. Another question that we need to ask as we're trying to take apart these verses to see what they mean is, why do they want this righteousness? Why do they want the righteousness of God? What is the righteousness of God? We kind of throw that word around, don't we? Pursue righteousness. No one is righteous, not even one. Well, here the word righteousness can be translated as the moral correctness of God or the justice of God. And so if we reorder the words to show kind of whose righteousness it is and substitute the word justice, we see that what James is telling them, the anger of people does not produce God's justice or the anger of people does not produce God's moral correctness in the community that you're a part of. See, they were trying to bring about this moral correctness, this righteousness of God by engaging the world around them with an angry tone. They were using angry words as a response to the persecution that they were receiving. And this kind of behavior by Christians is happening today, right? In the same way that it was when James wrote his letter. And it's, 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 in this time, it's really tricky to be a Christian in America. And as we cruise full speed into 2020 and face yet another presidential election, I think that things are only going to intensify. We're in the middle of a shift I think history is going to look back and see a shift in how people perceive Christians, the people who claim to believe in Jesus. I think it started four or five years ago in, in, in its intensity and in kind of what we're experiencing now with the 2016 election. As evangelical Christianity was defined in new ways by modern news outlets and bloggers, 
the political pundits. They came from both, and, and, and in, in both the liberal and the conservative side, people seeking to kind of politicize Christianity. I don't know about you, but social media became a place I wanted to stay far away from during that time. And I, and I fear what's coming in the coming months and has already been happening as we move through this tricky, tricky election. That's not a political comment. That's a pastoral comment. We need to watch our hearts as we move through this next few months. But people, as they took to social media, defending their version of Christianity, trying to redefine things, came from both liberal and conservative sides, swinging hard, spewing vinegar. All was done in the name of getting justice for God. But I think that people forget, just like our original audience forgot, that human anger can't bring about God's justice. That's not how God works. Human words have no power. They cannot change hearts or minds. They can't stand the test of time. And our words are many. What does Proverbs say? Sin, not justice, abounds. It's really interesting. I was recently talking to an unbelieving friend, and he was commenting on how Christians don't live out what the Bible says. We don't follow what we claim to love so dearly. He said everyone has a different interpretation and comes down on different sides of doctrine. You see, this, this guy doesn't have any real knowledge of Scripture, but it doesn't stop him from rightly seeing that all the words flying around miss the mark of truth and don't produce anything like righteousness, justice, or moral correctness, or at the very least, all of the words flying around that he's been exposed to have had no impact on his heart. But we're not left without help. As we seek to let God's word speak for itself, look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Having strongly warned against using anger to bring about righteousness, justice, James now broadens his scope and brings a strong command to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. It's a holistic call to stop living like the world. It's a call in line with commands against anger, but much more broad and far-reaching. This is a call to finish turning from anger, making it possible to receive with meekness or humility the implanted word. Humility is easily defined as the opposite of anger, isn't it? I mean, they're like two channels of music panned in stereo. One is on this side and one is on this side. And humility is necessary in order to set up receiving of what James calls the implanted word. So let's pause for a moment and think about what it means to receive something that's implanted, okay? This is an important thing to do as we're looking through scripture to try to say, okay, what, what is God saying here? If the word is implanted, what does that mean? Well, John Piper, no surprise, has a helpful thought on this passage. If you treat the word of God like your kidneys, you're making a big mistake. Your kidneys are implanted in you by your first birth. But you do not go on receiving your kidneys. They just sit there doing their work. You rarely think about them. You certainly don't receive them. They're already there, firmly planted. But James says to receive the implanted word is already in you, and you should receive it. It is rooted and planted in you. It brought you life. It is there sustaining that life by feeding faith in Christ, but it is not there like kidneys. 
It is there like oxygen. It gives life, and in giving life, it makes you breathe. And in breathing, you receive oxygen. And no one says, I have oxygen. Look how well it is working for me. It makes me alive. I don't need to receive oxygen. Or at least that person won't be saying that for very long. See, God's word is like oxygen in our lungs. And James is reminding us to breathe and breathe deeply. In fact, he's appealing to us to actively move everything else out of the way. Filthiness, rampant wickedness, anger, everything out of the way. And just take a deep breath. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 helps us see that Paul writes to the believers, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, as James encourages the believers to receive the implanted word, he's reminding them of the gospel, which God has implanted deep in their hearts, and which he will continue to plant again and again as they move away from the world and toward him in humility. My cousin, for a short time, was a missionary in in Asia, in a large city that was heavily, heavily polluted. So much so that they began to experience health effects from it. And many of the people living there experienced health effects. And they noticed that as they traveled away from the city into the country, occasionally on holiday, that it would become easier to breathe as they got further away from the city. Easier to take a breath. Easier to breathe deeply. And finally, by the effects, by the end of their time away, their lungs felt clear. Could take a full and deep breath. James is reminding us here to take a breath of gospel. That Christ died for our sins. That we're okay in Jesus. And like our need to continue breathing, we have to continue also moving away from worldliness. Putting it away. Receiving again and again the good news that those of us who have believed belong wholly to God. And that he's empowered us to live for him in victory over sin. And here's where the wisdom of the Old Testament, of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, really comes to bear and rings loud with helpful truth. If it's true that when words are many, sin is not lacking and listening is almost impossible, then it's also true that when words are few, there is less opportunity for sin, along with increased chances to humbly listen to the implanted word and to others. The relationships we have with one another pave the way for how we interact with God. If we're, unable to quick, if we're unable to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger with those that we interact with on a regular basis, how do we suddenly flip the switch when we sit down with God's word to hear what he has to say? And it goes both ways. As we learn to humbly listen to what God is saying, we learn to humbly listen to those around us. And so the word has an effect again and again on our lives as we seek to receive again the implanted word of the truth of what God has done for us. A proud heart that multiplies words to the point of anger cannot move toward God. But the beauty is that as we learn to humbly receive the word, we're set up for the second response James is calling for here in this passage. So to receive the word leads to reflect the word. Again, we have two halves in this section that are going to contrast to one another. So we're going to take them one at a time, before putting them together to see the whole picture. 
So let's look at verses 23 through 25 in James 1. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man intently looks at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He'll be happy in his doing. So similar to the first response that we saw in 19 through 21, we begin with command followed by a human action that needs to be corrected. So in light of the command, so the word can have its fully effect on us. This human action comes from, is a little bit different from the first. It's not a situation that needs correcting, but an overarching human condition. Here the command goes further into doing what the implanted word calls for, what God has saved us for, to live for him at peace with him and others. But before the doing can happen, we've got a pattern that we have to follow. Someone to whom we want to seek to reflect, seek to imitate. Mirrors at the time when James was writing um, were, were a lot less effective than they are today. It stands to reason. But their purpose was essentially the same. Again, James, he's being practical here. We need to, we need to look through what he's saying, but the practicality rings out. He warns us not to be like the person who looks at their natural face and forgets how they were. The man has an opportunity to look deep into his soul and be moved by what he finds there, but he's not able to. Instead, he looks only at the surface of his natural face before walking away. Perhaps he's checking to make sure that his beard is on point. His robe is falling just the right way off the shoulder. Whatever that this person is looking at, to be sure, it has no lasting value. And therefore, very quickly forgotten as he walks away. It's similar to the uselessness of human words to bring about real heart change. By looking into a mirror, we're not able to reflect anything but our natural state. It's the sin nature we were born with. Following after that reflection would only lead us further away from living a distinct life of worship for God. Instead, we need a better image to reflect. And so James points us to a better mirror. And the better mirror is outlined in verse 25 as the perfect law, the law of liberty. And in it, there's a direct line to blessing or happiness. If James had only said the law, our original audience, and and most likely us, would be thinking Old Testament law, right? But he doesn't. That law would be the pattern for behavior. But James is calling us, just as he said with the implanted word, he's calling us to something that will help us understand what he's really talking about. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, of freedom. So this law is not just the law, but the perfect law. The law of liberty. And it brings to mind Paul's letter to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 1, when he reminds them, For freedom Christ has set us free. For liberty. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to sin. He's reminding them that the gospel needs no addition whatsoever. There's the saying that's become popular in Christianity. Jesus plus anything equals... Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You all knew it, I know. Second service will get it, it'll be okay. There's coffee available outside. <laughs> see, that's Paul's point, and it's James' point, and it's, it's really what we need to see this morning. 
The perfect law, the law of liberty here is the written law as lived out perfectly by Jesus. Do you guys remember last summer? Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? All that God prescribed for living out and Jesus has fulfilled it all, right? Died in our place. The implanted word, the gospel, reminds us of this. And it speaks the full and complete message that we belong to God and that he's at work in us to make us more like Jesus. So here James is actually taking the written law, which isn't powerful on its own, and pointing us towards Jesus so that we would understand that the law plus Jesus equals perfection. Equals freedom. Jesus came to fulfill that law to bring us into right relationship with God. So the good news for our original audience and for us today is that we can look into this mirror and we don't see a blank face looking back at us. We don't see a broken human face looking back at us. We see Jesus out of this mirror, out of the word mirror. And so when we hear again the gospel message, we see the image of Christ perfect because we're not. Slain so that we didn't have to. Risen to powerful reigning so that we could worship him as our king. The word of God is the mirror that we're to come back to again and again to see our great savior. And when we first begin to look into this mirror, we're very aware of the stark contrast between our natural image and the image that we see reflected of Christ. But over time, as we persevere, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, we begin to see more of Jesus in us and less of our natural reflection, don't we? Those of you who've walked with Christ for some time, or maybe even a short time, you already see the results. Wouldn't it be great if we could capture kind of like a progress pic? And if you follow those kinds of things on social media, they've been a little bit low lately, right? December, kind of everybody taking off, making progress on those kinds of things. But think about it. On this side... To see your natural image reflected back. And on this side, to see Christ at work in your life through the gospel, making you more and more like himself. This is a gradual process though, isn't it? Jesus breathing life into us over and over again. Helping us to grow degree by tiny degree to be more like himself. And those degrees seem really tiny sometimes. But it requires us to come back again and again. Empowered by grace to Jesus in order to experience the sweetness that is the word implanted in us. And make no mistake, but that's the blessing that James is talking about. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This means that as we listen for and receive the implanted word in light of the perfect law of liberty, we are blessed by the result. We become more and more like Jesus, and that is a happy thing. It's true for both this life and the one to come, because in the end, the purpose for us becoming more and more like Jesus is because one day we will be with him, and our desire to work out God's justice on our own out of anger will be gone, and even our natural reflection will be a distant memory and will be perfect like Jesus, physically, having a heart changed for good that doesn't want to sin anymore. Always living this distinct life of worship for God. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. But it comes out of response as we seek to receive the word, reflect the word, and rely on the word together. 
And so these last few verses of James, we're going to move through, and then I want to talk about what does it look like practically in your life to be in this world. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As James begins this summary, he's been teaching us. He again leads with how important our tongue is. And I think he does this as a last reminder. Remember, he's kind of putting both of these first two points together, emphasizing a need to rely on the word. Last week, Zach quoted a little bit later in James chapter 3, verse 5, where he talked about the effect of the tongue. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James is most likely aware of his own need to control his tongue. Remember at the beginning, he doesn't pull punches. He cuts quick. But as he's correcting these early believers, whatever's on his mind, we can be sure that his desire for them and for us is that we would imitate Jesus' way of life. That we would rely on the word in the same way that Jesus did. That God would be the focal point of all of our waking up, our lying down, our moving here and there. And that we would be a light for God in a dark world that's not our home. The follow-up warning against worthless religion is also strong. And rightly so. From our passage, we know that James sees not giving into anger as the first step toward rejecting a worldly life. Being able to receive the implanted word in order to do what it says. And this is the foundation for demonstrating reliance on Jesus and taking the next steps of living like Jesus. After putting down selfishness, we're able to pursue the kind of living that James calls us to in verse 27. The religion that's pure and undefiled. These two real-world examples actually sum up Jesus' character beautifully, don't they? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. I can imagine that as James is writing this, he might even be remembering the scene of Jesus with the woman at the well or gathering the children to himself, the parable of the Good Samaritan, or even the time that Jesus allowed a prostitute to anoint his feet with oil in front of the religious leaders and then forgave her sins. No doubt Jesus has left an impression on James of what it looks like to live like him. See, we're not to live angry but humble. We're not to live cruel, but merciful. We're not to live wicked, but holy. The beauty of these characteristics is that they're a good indication of how our lives are lining up with God's word, aren't they? See, God calls us to live like Christ in his word, to fulfill all of what he's asked us. But we can't. And we certainly can't do it without action. The co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, is credited with coining this famous phrase, you cannot think your way into right actions, but you can act your way into right thinking. For James, both faith and action go hand in hand. It's often a feather that people kind of put in his cap. As we see Jesus' character as both the outcome and the starting point for us. But but what he would say is, is not that we can get this outcome on our own. We can't will or muscle or buy our way to greater obedience to God's word in 2020. These characteristics of Jesus serve as a spiritual gut check of sorts. And a lot has been made of these two examples that James gives us, right? 
But, but we need to see this as similar to Paul's list of the spiritual gifts. So visiting widows and orphans in their affliction is not a, a comprehensive list of what mercy looks like. Instead, similar to the spiritual gifts, it's a work of God deep in our hearts that manifests itself in something real, something tangible. And it comes by relying on God's word. And what's clear is that, and non-negotiable, is that we would live with this posture of mercy towards those who need it most, like Jesus. And the beauty of all of this, for us who have put their faith in Jesus, is that we have him. We have the living, implanted word, the perfect law of liberty. He's our help. And as we humbly receive him daily and eager look to him daily, we will become more like him daily, even if seemingly slow going. A mentor of mine once told me, Ben, sometimes the best you can do is to simply lean in the right direction. So as we close this morning, I want to encourage you to press into God's word this new year. I know it's a battle. It's a battle for me to spend daily time in God's word. I was reflecting this morning, our our oldest just turned eight, and I was reflecting back on what it was like kind of pre-kids. Man, it's like five days a week, six days a week. Now I struggle for four, if I'm honest. So what stands in between you and I? This is something that I learned a long time ago, and I just want to offer it out to you. Two things that are really helpful. Have a plan and have a place. And so plan. My plan is the Eastside Daily Bible Reading Plan. I I think I saw recently that you guys are reading through the Bible this next year. Laurel, is that right? Jump on that train. And this is what we've told people at Eastside. Don't worry if you miss a day. Don't try to catch up. Just go to the next day. Just go to the next day. What's important is not that you're perfect, that you have all the tick marks on your list, but what's important is that you're meeting with God. And so meet with God. Have a plan. The second is a place. When it comes to place, these are just things that are helpful for me. You have to kind of work this out. My place is my living room. It's very close to my bedroom. Make it easy for me to get there. It's early in the morning. I know it's not everybody's jam. It doesn't have to be. I have my Bible, my journal on a specific shelf in our living room so I know where it's at. So even in my pre-coffee state, I could find it if I need to. Though I rarely do pre-coffee because I just know that God knows that I'm feeble and need help. And so I've just resigned myself to that. And then another thing that, that I found helpful years ago is that I don't, I don't read the same translation in the morning that I do later on when my brain is fully awake. And so I've really found the CSB to be helpful. I read the ESV most of the time, so I'm preaching out of this morning. But the CSB is really helpful. It kind of has more phrases. They've made some of the decisions for you. The NLT is another one that I've used. Um, And if if that's heresy to you, that's okay. But it's helpful to just kind of realize our weakness and just come humbly before God. And then I'll sneak a third P in there, which is pray. Pray. Ask God, like the psalmist, God, would you help me see wonderful things in your word? And then ask somebody in your household or city group to help hold you accountable. Again, to faithfulness, not perfection, faithfulness. Because as we seek to live lives of distinct worship for God, we need to receive the word, to reflect the word, 
and to rely on the word so that we can live like Jesus. And if you're well in stride, keep it up. If you stalled over the holidays, pick it back up. If you're stuck and you don't know where to start, just lean and ask somebody to help. Wherever you are, remember that God is for you and eager to provide grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to live holy and upright lives before you? In front of one another in the watching world. Help us follow hard after the example of Jesus, our, our big brother. The one who brought this good news to bear into our lives. And God, I, I just pray that you would work this gospel, this good news of your grace, that we're okay in Jesus, deep into our hearts this year. Help us be hearers and doers of this word. Change us more and more to be like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.